Hi everyone, welcome to Morning Matcha. Today's guest is Mika Hollander, who's the co-founder of Sustain. Hi. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. It's so nice to get to know you a little bit. I know we have some mutual friends and it's just been a pleasure to finally meet you in person. Totally. So I'm really excited to learn more about your entrepreneurial journey and learn about Sustain in general, what inspired you to start it. And so tell me a little bit about, I mean, I know you started it with your father, but what inspired you to start it? Yeah. So I grew up like totally immersed in the world of natural products, like 30 plus years ago when they were just not, I would say not as popular as they are today by Mm. like a landslide. Um, My dad started a company called Seventh Generation and um, I kind of grew up just thinking that that's like what business was like and that every company was out to make the world a better place and find more sustainable solutions to products that already existed. What a Uh, wonderful view of the world. Yeah. (laughs) Until I like got to college and realized like that's actually really far from true. Um, Let's before you get into it a little bit, what, um, cause I, I love buying seventh generation brown paper towels. Like that's, that was a huge thing to, for a company to put out. So I'm curious, is that how you grew up in your home? Like that's just something that your parents were passionate about? Yeah. My dad is, has been a serial entrepreneur. Um, seventh generation, I think was like his fourth or fifth business. And, um, he just got really passionate at a certain point in his life around, you know, he'd started businesses and sold businesses and wanted to create his next business as a business that would really like truly make the world a better place and use sort of consumer products as like a positive force for change. So, I mean, seventh generation and I were like born the same year and yeah, not, I mean, diapers that didn't work and brown paper towels and, you know, 30 years ago, natural products like were awesome, but like not as effective as they are today. We've made so many, so many strides when it comes to like green chemistry and stuff like that. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I thought that was just like normal. Um, and like our Oreos were not Oreos. They were like, you know, Newman's and, (laughs) Um, we didn't have like sugar cereal and yeah, I just, I literally just thought that was normal. We also, I grew up mostly in Vermont. Um, so there was some of that around us more than probably other places in the country at the time, but that was definitely like normal to me. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that was your upbringing that kind of, you know, you grew up with seventh generation as your sibling and then, and then what, how did sustain come to be? So what did you study? I studied, I I made my own uh, major at NYU, which was socially responsible business, go figure. (laughs) And my plan was always like that I would go work at seventh generation. Um, But my dad was really adamant that I get other experience first. So I graduated from college. I worked at like a brand strategy agency. Um, I ended up applying to go back to business school And while I was at business school, I decided that I was really going to shift and work, you know, in sort of sustainable business. Um, And I spent that summer in between my two years at NYU business school at a huge consumer packaged goods, like multinational 
company in their sustainability team. And I was like, so excited about that. And was like, Oh my God, like I'm going to be this like awesome 24 year old, like telling them how to like change everything they're doing. Um, that wasn't the case. So I was a little like disillusioned by the idea that you could just have like a sustainability team in a huge company and realize that if it wasn't coming from like the, the senior leadership mm -hmm. and the like mission of the organization, there wasn't going to be a huge impact in terms of like creating meaningful change. Um, so I started thinking about like, okay, so if that's not what I'm going to do, which was either like go work at seventh generation or go work at a big company and do sustainability, like what am I going to do where I feel like I'm going to have an impact every single day? Um, and I started thinking about like, the fact that there was this shift towards natural cleaning products and skincare a little bit at the time, food. But when it came to the products going inside of one of the most absorbent parts of our bodies, our vaginas, um, there weren't any, there wasn't any conversation and education about what was in these products. And there certainly weren't any sustainable clean options mm -hmm. um, at the time. And my dad, um, who had left seventh generation by that point, had had this idea like 20 years prior to start a company called Rainforest Rubbers, which was going <laughs> to be a sustainable condom company. Um, and he and I started like talking about that idea. How do you talk about that idea with your dad? I know. It's so weird, it's so, it, I mean, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, I always joke that of course, like I was like in, you know, middle school and they were like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was like a condom entrepreneur and I want to do it with my dad. And that sounds really bad. So That's I should hilarious. not make that joke in that vein again. Um, but yeah, so I, it wasn't weird. It was like, it basically started out as just like, a business idea conversation. Um, and we ended up being like, Hey, like actually like the condom category is perfect for change and for a new, you know, natural entrant into it. Yeah. Um, there was no sustainable vegan, you know, latex fair free, trade yeah. are, they are latex, but mm -hmm. I'll explain oh. why the latex is different. Um, there was no clean option. And on top of that, what I'm particularly passionate about was, um, 40% of condoms are purchased by women and every single brand that's basically defined the space has neglected women as a consumer. Um, they've never engaged with us around, you know, what we want, what we need in a conversation. It's a completely male oriented category. And so I saw a huge opportunity to create a brand of condoms speaking that spoke to women and that like met their needs. Um, and that actually made them feel good about making that purchase versus like a slut for making that purchase. Yeah. Um, so it was really the idea of creating sort of like natural sexual wellness products, but putting women at first, the forefront. Yeah. Um, that birthed sustain and the name. I love it. The name it's funny. The name was like, we sent out a survey, like a survey monkey to like, you know, probably like 50 friends and family. I think one of the names that we tested, which was not my idea, and I'm so happy it didn't come back <laughs> as the as the winner was Mika. I was like, this is not not what I'm looking for. So there was like it was like Mika, Rainforest Rubbers, Sustain, and like probably ten other things. Um, and Sustain, I don't remember who came up with it, like one of our investors or something, mm -hmm. and that was the winner. And so wow. that was the name. So 
right now, how many or how many products did you launch with? We launched just with condoms. We spent um, about a year and a half like researching, sourcing our supply chain, creating a manufacturing process that we felt was very different and, you know, met all of our concerns around um, safe ingredients and fair trade and vegan and all of that stuff. And we went to market first five and a half years ago just with condoms and obviously have expanded into over 15 SKUs since then. Mm -hmm. And when you go to market with a condom or when you um, start manufacturing, do you go to a manufacturer that already manufactures condoms and then you tell them to do it differently? Like, how do you even go about that? It's tough. Yeah, no, we, we did a couple different things. We, um, first, you know, I think, which is really important when you're starting a business, if you're not an expert, you know, admit that and go find people who are experts in these categories. So we ended up finding and getting connected to the former head of R and D from Durex. And he partnered with us to really, um, he had created a manufacturing process that prevents um, something called nitrosamines from forming in the latex, which nitrosamines are a carcinogen and they're a byproduct of heating and molding latex. So we were like, okay, that's, that's how we want to manufacture the condoms. And he obviously knew every manu like mm -hmm. condom manufacturer globally and helped us find and partner with a manufacturer that was willing to basically implement this process. Wow. That's definitely the way to do it. <laughs> it's really well, it's, about, it's a medical device too. So condoms, tampons, lubricants, period cups, they're all class two medical devices regulated by the FDA. So it's not, you know, it's not a category where you can be like, Hey, like I found some cool ingredient and I'm going to like mi mix it up in my garage yeah. and like put it in a package and sell it. You have to like do things like pretty, there's a lot Legit. of people who don't. Um, but if you want to do it well and right and be successful, you have to like get your shit together in advance. Yeah. So you mentioned latex yeah. and you were going to mention that yours is different. Yeah. So our condoms are made with natural latex. About 50% of the condoms on the market are made with synthetic latex and the rest are made with natural latex. Um, if it's a latex condom, Latex, natural latex is the sap of the rubber tree. So just like you would go and tap a maple tree for maple syrup. I don't know. If, I mean, yeah. I grew up in Vermont, yeah. so I can like <laughs> visualize that perfectly. Um, but it basically does no damage to the tree. And you tap the tree and the latex comes out in its liquid form. So what we had to do first was find a rubber plantation that produced latex for condoms. And we traveled all over the world and looked at a bunch of different plantations and we were pretty horrified with what we found. There's, you know, similar to like the garment industry or the electronics industry, any time you continue to dig into the supply chain, you're not hearing or seeing or finding good news. Mm -hmm. And it was the same thing for the latex and rubber industry. There was a lot of child labor. There were a lot of harsh chemicals and pesticides being used on these plantations. And we ended up finding the only fair trade certified rubber plantation in the world that makes latex for condoms, which means that all of the workers are paid a fair wage, a much higher wage than, you know, the average salary of all the people in the surrounding areas. There's health care for the workers. There's a school for their kids. Um, it's a really different place than the other plantations we'd visited. Wow, that is amazing that you found that plantation that yeah. that even exists if there's only one. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, 
hopefully over the next 10 years, as consumers become more curious and knowledgeable about asking questions around supply chain and where ingredients are being sourced, we'll see the industry move in that direction. But, you know, six years ago, six and a half years ago, um, we were lucky to find what we did. Yeah. And touching on that a little bit, obviously the landscape has changed a lot and consumers are a lot more conscious of what they're putting in their bodies and what they're purchasing. And I was recently at Founder Made and um, someone was saying how plastic is the new sugar. Yeah. And I, I'm curious how you see that playing a role uh, moving forward in the industry. And in general, I mean, we have Pepsi and um, so many manufacturers so many businesses that are now moving to like aluminum water bottles and getting out of plastic. So how do you see just the landscape changing? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. I think the biggest shift in sort of sexual wellness and period products since we started has just been, you know, when we were starting out, like we were really treated like a little bit of a pariah, like people were very uncomfortable engaging with us, consumers, investors, you know, manufacturers less so because they made these products retailers. Like it was kind of this like, uh, like we don't really want to talk about like condoms or lubricants or like period products. Like even people who sold them, it wasn't something they wanted to like sit around and talk about. Um, and it was really challenging. It was challenging to find partners. It was just a really hard time. And I think the biggest shift, um, yes, ingredients and like awareness around what's in these products, but Mostly it's just been, you know, women have gotten so much more comfortable in the last five years talking about sexual wellness and, mm -hmm. and, and their periods. Um, and you're seeing the examples of that in everything from like the media to like conversations on TV shows to, you know, Sephora and like urban outfitters are carrying like sexual wellness products. Mm -hmm. Like there's been a huge shift. And I think as we first now bring these conversations and products more mainstream, then it will shift even more towards, well, wait, what's even in these products? 95% um, of women in the U.S. are still using conventional tampon brands, you know, that like blows my mind. And knowing that like at one point someone was saying, um, I don't know if it was a news story or headline that I had read, but like tampons, that you don't see what's inside of it before you put it in your body. And so many of them even mold, become moldy. Like even oh, aside from yeah. the fact that there's bleach and fragrance and all these things that go into it in the plastic. And it's just crazy. Yeah. I mean, one it, on the plastic note for us, like we do have um, tampons that have bioplastic, which are plant-based applicators that you can recycle, but it's still, you know, it's still a plastic. Yeah. And so after we launched our initial tampon pad and liner line, we then quickly shifted to also adding reusable period care products. So we make 100% organic cotton period underwear. We make a reusable. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, we make a reusable um, medical grade silicone period cup. And, you know, I like to have both solutions. I think it's really hard to get somebody who's been using, you know, the big brand that starts with the T um, <laughs> her whole life to just say, okay, go from that to a period cup. I think there's a lot of people yeah, who do that. I and it's still so awesome. even transferred to a period cup. Yeah. I, just, I mean, I have a, I have a whole mix and range of what I use, but, um, it's hard to get them from like one extreme to another. And I think that what we want to do is like help you figure out 
how to transition at whatever stage you are in that process. And it's really hard to just get people to go from a conventional tampon to an organic cotton tampon. And mm -hmm. if you like take away the applicator and the tampon and make them go right to a period cup, I think we're just creating more of an uphill battle. Yeah. Um, so once we introduce them to different ingredients and a different way of thinking about their period, I think over time we've seen how awesome it is that they eventually will then try underwear, the underwear or the cup. So you mentioned you have raised capital, obviously, for Sustain. How many times have you gone out and raised? How much have you raised? What's that experience been like? Yeah, we so we actually got acquired um, about four months ago. But up until that point, we'd properly raised about three times, mm -hmm. um, you know, first from friends and family and then more of like an angel seed round. And then um, we did like a proper Series A like a year and a half ago, uh, maybe a little bit more than that with, um, you know, a more traditional investor and yeah, not, it's not my favorite. Yeah. I met someone, I, I was catching up with someone, um, a couple weeks ago and she said she had just raised her series A and I said, Oh my God, how are you doing? You must be exhausted. That's so awesome. And she was like, it was so amazing. I met so many awesome people. And I was just like, Oh my God, like, that's just, I hope that was what your experience was like, but I know so many people who raise money and it's not, you know, it's not a fun process. It's especially not a fun process when you're in a category that the people on the other side of the table don't use your products. They're probably a little uncomfortable with what you're talking about it. They can't relate to mm -hmm. it. They don't understand like how challenging and like emotionally driven and stigmatized these categories are and conversations are. Um, so yeah, I totally hate yeah. raising money. <laughs> it's like a necessary evil though. And I'm really optimistic as I see like the types of companies that are getting funded over the last year or two that this, you know, sort of like women centric space, um, in terms of the categories and the people and founders and more off, limits topics that are getting funded. Like I'm very optimistic about where we're headed. Yeah. It's so funny. I asked that question to so many people and some people are like, Oh, there's a reason why there's the word fun and fundraise. And I'm like, okay, that's not what I, you know, that's not what I normally hear, but that's great that some people think that it's super fun. I think they're, I think they're lying. I mean, I think they're, <laughs> I mean, I do think there's a listen, I think it depends who you are and it depends what your experience was. And if you can get it done in like 30 days, then like maybe it was fun, but that's just the average raise takes six months. Um, and it's, it's really challenging. It's mm -hmm. challenging to like go sit across from people who just criticize your business or don't get it. Yeah. Um, I, I don't believe people who say it's fun, but yeah, I, I know some people like it cause it's, it's thrill. It's thrilling. Yeah. But it's, challenging and it takes you away from running the business, which exactly. like I like up so doing much time. Yeah. yeah. I think some people just like fundraising and that's like something they're good at, but it's really hard when you have to balance that with like running the day to day of the business. So now that you've been acquired, what is, what changes have been made in terms of your role? Um, you know, not much. And also like so much, I'm still the president of sustain. Um, I'm still like leading our business and our brand. I have so much more support than ever before. Obviously like 
resources, people, experts, like retention marketing teams and like product development teams and yeah. not like one person or half a person doing that on the side. Yeah. Um, and that's really amazing because the company that acquired us, Grove Collaborative, which is like the fastest growing natural home and personal care brand in the U.S., like privately held brand, um, they share our values. Like sustainability is in their core. Um, they produce like 90% less plastic than any other consumer packaged goods company of their size in the U.S. Um, and so it's been amazing. I feel like our growth has been accelerated and I get to like really lean into the stuff that I love and like learn from people who are better at me <laughs> than me and the stuff that I didn't love or don't love before, didn't love before and still don't love. Um, so it's great, but it's different. You know, I think I was, I think for the first 30 days, like in such a like, uh, I was like seeing pink, like pink clouds everywhere. Where I was like, this is so amazing. And like, we have so much support and it was, and it is. Um, and I have such a great partner in Stu, the CEO and my boss, but it's also different. Like I'm not the ultimate Say. decision maker mm -hmm. anymore on some stuff. I mean, I, I am, and my opinion is valued and will continue to be, but you know, it's the double-edged sword of not being ultimately in control, but also not having the burden and the stress of being, being in like the person making the ultimate decision on everything. So and, it's different. And now, I mean, you mentioned you guys do a lot of lobbying. Yeah. And I wonder if I just have a few questions about that in general. I mean, you were just mentioning that in New York, you just passed a law. We what? helped. Yeah. We helped pass like a very monumental period products disclosure bill which is incredible and huge and should have been there from the beginning. So that's awesome that Thank you guys you. did that. How do you see brands? How do you see the landscape changing in that sense? Do you think that consumers ultimately have the most power and that brands are going to change because of what consumers want? Or do you think that no matter, I mean, obviously I think no matter what these laws need to be passed and it should be nationwide and worldwide, um, if it's not already in the EU and everywhere else. But do you think that brands are going to start going above and beyond what the standards are? Yeah, I think they have to. I think consumers are sort of like demanding and requiring that businesses be like positive stewards of change and take a much more proactive role in political issues and just in sort of shaping industries than ever before. I think when we're seeing companies like Walmart and Dick Sporting Goods, like have active conversations and open conversations around gun control and, you know, m the minimum wage and, and maternity leave, like it's because consumers are demanding transparency and they're demanding mm -hmm. change from, coming from sort of the companies that they buy from and support. I, I firmly believe that like big companies and any company will not be successful in the long term at this point, if you're not standing for something. And if you're not taking action beyond selling products and acquiring customers, you have to be really driving your category and industry towards much larger change. And how do you see brands like sustain or brands that are really, 
you know, really wanting to make a difference in these categories. How do you see them? Like, are you, is sustain going to be at Walmart? Is sustain going to be, is it already, where is it distributed? Because I feel that I live in a bubble. And then when I go on a road trip, I'm like, oh my God, no, the rest of the world obviously doesn't have Erewhon and whole, even whole foods. Like yeah. here in LA, we're like, oh, what whole foods? Are you kidding me? Like, I just want to go to Erewhon, but right. you go to downtown LA, you go to all these places. I mean, 7-Eleven is all you have. So how are we going to make this category or these categories accessible so that everyone has the option. Obviously that's a heated question, but it's like, no, it's, it, this is one of my favorite subjects. And the amazing thing about sustains next chapter is this is what Grove has done. So mm -hmm. Grove collaborative, which you hadn't heard of most people in LA and New York haven't heard of because Grove has built its entire business in the middle of the country. And its mission has been making natural products accessible and efficacious and mm -hmm. accessible to everybody. Um, and we've done that. I mean, we're more successful at Grove in Kansas than we are in California. Wow. Um, and that's because we've created a business model that enables sort of conversations, education for people who are new to the natural products category. 50% of Grove's customers have never tried natural products before. Wow. Um, and so sustain gets to sort of tack on to that and sustain gets to, you know, educate different types of customers than we were before. We were opposite. We've mostly been successful on the coasts, um, with sustain. And now we get to be a part of Grove and we get to access these customers and educate them on, you know, healthier period care and different types of sexual wellness products because we're selling through Grove. So it's funny in the, I think in the past, in order to access those customers, we'd go and sell into Walmart. Mm -hmm. um, but now we get to do that with Grove and we are in Whole Foods. We are on Amazon. Um, you know, I want our products to be as accessible as possible because of what you're talking about, right? Like uh, Stu, um, our CEO started Grove because he felt like every time, you know, he was running around and he was working a hundred hours a week and he was buying products at the bodega, like cleaning products and like personal care products. And every time he was like washing his hands or taking a shower, like he felt like his values were so misaligned with the products he was using. And he was like, felt bad about himself. And so he had this idea to make natural products convenient to everybody. Um, and he's been really successful at it. And we get to like participate in that with him now. And it's been really awesome. That's so great. And so wonderful to hear a success story like that, where you get acquired, but you're not selling out. So that's awesome. No, I, I, it's a, that is like one of the things I am most grateful for. I think that in the past, the model has been, you know, build something and then sell it to a Unilever Procter and Gamble type company, which is still great. And I think those companies are making a lot of positive shifts in sort of their trajectory for the future, but Grove and our deal, I think provides like a new model of how you can grow and then get acquired and skill, still scale sustainably and like values aligned, um, which is really exciting. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us Oh my today. God. Thank so you so fun. much. This was so fun. We're excited to see where Sustain goes from here. Me too. <laughs> 
Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this week's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a comment or review, and share with your friends. I'm always reading our comments and love hearing from you, so keep in touch, and I'll see you next time.